Good morning, guys. You guys uh, ready to jump in the Bible? Cool. How about you open your Bibles right now if you want to uh, John chapter 3. We've been in a series in this incredible gospel. We're going to just continue our way through this. So John chapter 3. Uh, we're going to look at a fairly decent size uh, passage of scripture here. As soon as my thing opens up here. We'll be looking at from verse 16 all the way down to verse 21. It's a pretty famous passage of teaching of Jesus. One of the things you'll notice first and foremost, if you have a Bible that has red letters, this entire segment is red letters. If you guys don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, go ahead and keep this. It's our gift to you guys. So I want to read this entire section. How about we all stand? Is that cool? One more time. Stand up. Read scripture. It's a way of just showing honor, reverence to the author of this incredible passes. So John chapter 3 verse 16 down to verse 21 says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and that people loved darkness rather than light, because their works or their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God, and this is the word of the Lord. I want to pray. So Jesus, thank you for uh, your words that have been spoken to us. God, we, we receive this segment here today, so with, always with all passages of Scripture, but especially this one, uh, as the words of Jesus write to us. God, I pray that you'd open our hearts, our minds, our imaginations, our understanding to respond rightly, and our wills to just align with yours, so we commit this time in your hands just ask, God, that you breathe hope and strength and conviction and comfort, uh, everything that's needed to us in this state that we find ourselves in right now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let y'all grab a seat. So what I want to do here in kind of breaking up this whole segment up in trying to look at, look at it in our time together here is I'm going to break it into three specific areas. So I'll just kind of give you the titles of what we'll be looking at and um, and, and I, I normally try not to like literate it, but those of you that were praying for a literated type sermon here this morning, you're welcome because you got it. Um, anyways, it, it, we, we, we're going to see, first of all, the cast of characters. Secondly, we'll take a look at the condition of humanity that Jesus articulates and defines. And then lastly, we'll take a look at this journey of what it looks like to come to the light or really come to grips with who Jesus is and who we truly are. And in spite of who we are, uh, in spite of, in, or in, in light of who God is, uh, to discover the salvation, the life, the hope that Jesus ultimately gives us. So, first of all, let's take a look at the cast of characters. I think it's important, especially when you are reading any passage of scripture, kind of step back a little bit. In fact, if you have uh, ever read the Bible, or if that's a kind of a, a practice that you have taken up in the new year, hopefully it's something that you continue to carry on. If you're not currently reading the Bible, my encouragement to you is take time in your day, every day, read scripture. Here's why. Uh, we need to consistently, regularly feed ourselves with an alternate narrative. It's, it's as simple as that. We need an alternate narrative to keep our hearts and our minds filled with hope from the life that God gives. 
Otherwise, I, I promise you, you, whether or not you know it or not, are constantly feeding on alternate narratives right now. The narratives, I promise you that you are constantly getting, are coming to you from social media, from the most famous influencers, from the music, music that you listen to, to the news. You are always feasting on alternate narratives. You might not be cognizant of the narrative that you're feasting on, or that's being shoved down your throat, or that is like being hooked up to a water hose, and you're just imbibing it. All of us are feasting regularly, consistently, constantly on narratives of our world around us. Those narratives will shape you. They will shape you. You always wonder why you're constantly filled with anxiety and stress. I promise you, follow it upstream to discover what narrative that you're believing. I promise you, whatever narrative that is, it will shape the way that you think about life, whether or not you're filled with hope or despair or anger or frustration or anxiety, whatever. I mean, again, there's lots of contributors that oftentimes and factors that will shape our world of anxiety and stress and whatnot. But the reality is that we are all feasting on certain varieties of narratives. Uh, the scripture is one that I would highly recommend you figure out a pathway in your life to make that a regular part of your life. With that being said, it's always good to kind of ask the question, whenever you're reading a certain passage of scripture, to kind of ask yourself, who are the cast of characters that are playing into that particular role right there? So in this particular passage, I want to take a look at three main characters that kind of arise. Number one, God. We see God as obviously the chief principal character. Uh, we see that he uh, describes, this says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So we see God as the one who not only created, but also loves the world. And also the active agent in sending his son. So God is an important character in this particular story, actively doing something on behalf of others. Uh, this is always important because it's really easy for us to believe uh, false narratives about who God is. In fact, if you uh, aren't aware of this already, there is a propagandist in our world today that will do anything he can to soil our understanding of who God is. Uh, the devil is described as the chief propaganda agent in the world that's constantly trying to give us misinformation about who God is. Um, and this is an opportunity for us to realign our understanding of who God is according to what Scripture teaches God to be. And in this case, we see first and foremost as God being the main chief character of his own story. He is the one that is actively sending Jesus into the world for a specific purpose. Uh, which leads us to the second character that we see is Jesus. It says, and again, Jesus actually is not, he's the one telling the story. He doesn't identify himself by name, but he does describe himself as the light. Describes himself as the light. And those who are in the world, that's, which is the third character we'll get to, but we're not going to get ahead of ourselves, that they are either coming to the light and having their deeds exposed and discovering the freedom of what it looks like to have the face in your own eyes your own evil, your own demons, come to grips with that, come to terms with that, and discover the grace that comes from Jesus, or we run from the light. And we try to continually, continually play this game of running from who Jesus is and the light that he oftentimes wants to bring into our lives. So we see that Jesus is the one who's the saving light sent from God into this world to seek and save those that are lost in darkness. Uh, third character we see is what, what we're just simply described as the world, the world. It's this big, massive kind of a term to describe lots of different agents. So in John's uh, gospel, he seems to use the word world as a term to describe kind of this order that opposes Israel's God. And this order could either be individuals, which will play into that, 
or systems that organize over individuals to govern individuals. So, for example, um, Rome. Rome was an agent, what we would describe as empire, or maybe even add another word to that, as evil empire. Uh, there's others that, other agents that organize themselves over human beings or individuals. For example, uh, the scribes and Pharisees or false religion that the Jews were promoting in the time of Jesus, the ones that ultimately were responsible for putting Jesus to death. So we see these empire-type systems that are oftentimes erected. In fact, if you follow the whole Bible all the way to the very end, for example, when you get to the book of Revelation, you'll find terminology or language that gets utilized to describe evil empire under what name? Is anybody want to take a random guess? What's the name? Babylon, right? Babylon the Great. And Babylon just kind of becomes sort of this uh, euphemism to describe any form of governing agent that oppresses, uh, opposes God, that oppresses people, that destroys people, that ruins people, that governs people, that uh, brings destruction upon people, that tempts them towards evil, that oftentimes are responsible for organizing and ordering all other forms of systems, whether it be buying or selling or commerce or anything like that. We see that basically being setting itself as an opposition against God. It's oftentimes described as Babylon. So the world can be both lost humans in darkness, trapped by self-loathing, depression, anxiety, finding themselves fleeing from the light, also uh, evil empire. And this kind of seems to describe the idea of the world. So nonetheless, this concept of the world or this opposing order of both individuals as well as empire uh, is nevertheless, get this, is, is, is the object, really important to hear this, is the object of God's redeeming love and affection. Yes, it's gone awry. It's gone astray. Yes, it's drifted from his original intentions. Um, but it is nonetheless God's desire to step in to bring rescue to this thing that, that has horribly gone off into destruction. For example, John chapter 1, verse 29 says this. John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus comes in in reference to what John the baptizer has to say, that Jesus comes, he has a role. His role is to take away this some destructive activity he describes as sin or sinful actions or missing the mark of God or the sinful proclivities. It, his, his aim is to take away the sin that has accumulated upon this world, both individuals as well as the systems that have ruled and destructed, uh, destroyed human individuals. John chapter 12, verses 31 to 33 says this, The time for judgment has come, and then Jesus goes on to say, when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. So again, we learn other information. Who is the ruler over this world? In other words, if you want to put it this way, who is the villain? Who is the, who's the evil one? Who is the oppressor? It's, it's, it's not, if, you know, if you lean red, it's not the blue. If you lean blue, it's not the red. It's Satan. He's the, he's the ruler over this world. That Jesus has come to dismantle, to destroy, to ruin, to, 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 to foil his plans, his endeavors, because he's bringing destruction to the world. If you want to put it in an entirely different way, you can think of it this way. God and Jesus, this combination through the Holy Spirit. And there as well, the Holy, what we would call the Holy or the Sacred Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are conspiring, working together uh, to rescue humanity. We would describe them as, in their character, as the hero of the story. They are the main central figure of the entire story, the creator of this whole thing. They, have, they hold the, the architectural plans of what it should look like. 
Um, they realize that humanity has drifted from those archi architectural plans and have kind of crafted their own uh, Babel, their own false government, their own false ways, their own illusions that they've held on to, their own idols, their own forms of injustice. And yet God recognizes, even though humanity has far off missed the mark, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are working together as the hero of the story. The second, we see the world as basically playing the subject or playing the character of being the antihero. So if you're unfamiliar with the role of the antihero, uh, I'll just read out of Wikipedia. It says something like this, that this is a main character in a story who may at times act morally correct. At times. They may act within a way that you would listen to the storyline play out. And you're like, oh, they're, they're the hero. They're doing good. They're making right choices. They're working on behalf of those that are struggling or having a hard time in life or in the margins. But it goes on to say that yet typically they tend to exhibit dark traits like narcissism, psychopathy, or Machiavellianism. If you're unfamiliar with Machiavellianism, it's the idea of winning at whatever cost. You will win, you will succeed, you will lay a hold of whatever victory, whatever self-centered uh, goals that you can attain or achieve, no matter what, even if it means crushing your enemy. That's Machiavellianism. Uh, this is uh, the role of the antihero. Um, this role has been really familiar a lot in movies and episodes and TV shows and whatnot over the uh, past multiple, many, many, many years. But one chief example of uh, an antihero is, if you guys are familiar with Breaking Bad, uh, Walter White, right? He's, he's literally the antihero. Um, and, and the question is, you're always wrestling with, is he good? Is he bad? Is he fighting for justice? Is he, like, unjust? Like, what's going on with Walter White? And the answer is, I don't know. It's hard to tell. Sometimes he's fighting for good because everything that he's doing, if you're unfamiliar with the story, I'm going to tell you, you can just go ahead and take a look at it. But the point of the matter is, whatever it is that he's doing seems like it's being done for a good cause, but he is literally, as the title suggests, breaking bad. He's going in and on a path towards self-destruction and ruin, not just for himself, but everything that he was holding was dear. He's classic example of an antihero. So then that leads us to the final character, which is uh, Satan, is the ultimate villain. He's the one that oppresses, enslaves the world through temptation and ultimately fearful control of empire, the very thing that Jesus has come to dismantle and destroy. So these main cast of characters, what we see first and foremost, which kind of now moves on into the next condition of humanity, which this, John tells us really clearly, like, what is the state of humanity? Uh, one of the things that if you honestly read the Bible and you deal with it, it's one of the reasons why I think sometimes we have a hard time with the Bible, because the Bible is really clear. It doesn't hold back on the state or the condition of human frailty. Um, it's really easy. In fact, I think sometimes one of the ways in which we wrongly read the Bible is we look at the Bible uh, looking for a cast of characters that are heroes. So, for example, um, we tend to moralize certain stories. Um, and this oftentimes gets done, unfortunately, in, in, in children's biblical literature, where you have examples of, like, David being the hero of a story. Or Jonah being the hero of a story. I don't know how you can make Jonah the hero of a story because the whole aim is basically a satire of how Jonah the prophet is actually doing unprofit type stuff um, and, and the exact opposite of what prophets should be doing. Um, but the point that I'd make is this, is that the, the Bible's pretty clear that the real hero of the story time and time again is God. Always. Over and over. In fact, if you want to think of it, one 
big universal like uh, label to put over the scripture is that though it is a series of 66 books, it's a library of, of different writings written by different authors over different periods of time on different continents. It has one unifying story. And the unifying story is that God is the hero of the whole entire thing. That human beings have a very significant role that we have drifted from that role. We oftentimes wanted to push God off to the margins. We make ourselves the hero of the story. But in reality, we are flawed, we're broken characters. And so what we see is that Jesus clearly describes kind of the condition of humanity. I just want to go through each one of these one by one. So verse 16, it tells us that the condition of humanity, first and foremost, in this particular passage that we just read, is it describes human beings as perishing. Perishing. Uh, Let's read it again. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The state of human beings is one of basically coming undone perishing, uh, or state of lostness. It's the, the word can oftentimes mean decay or being like literally being lost or being removed or finding oneself displaced. Uh, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. It's kind of like a state of exile, forever exile, never being at home. Uh, the word can have a lot of different ways of describing this. In science, in fact, if you want kind of a modernized way of thinking about this, in science, not even like a biblical perspective, the way that science would describe the particular word that's used here is entropy. Just this constant state of disorder. Things are moving from a state of order into a state of disorder. You cannot stop it. You can push against it for a period of time, a limited period of time, but it requires force to consistently keep something from entering into a state of chaos or nothingness, or brokenness. You remove that force that's keeping something from degenerating or breaking, and then it just begins to fall apart. This is literally the state of humanity that Jesus says. Human beings, you and I, are just in perpetually the state of brokenness, decomposing, decaying, becoming lost. The second thing that we see, uh, the condition of humanity, is he says in verse 18 that they are in a state of being condemned. Again, that sounds like a really big, nasty word. And again, it's really easy for us. And, and, and I want to I encourage you to withhold judgment on God, first and foremost, because it's really easy to read a passage like this and think that God is the active agent in condemning humanity. He's not. Spoiler alert. He's actually not. His aim is to disrupt the agents of condemnation. To sustain it, to reverse it, is exactly what we see that God is up to. So take a look at this, verse 18. Whoever does not believe is condemned because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Our particular English word condemn is, uh, is a composite word. It comes from the word con, uh, and then the Latin phrase uh, damnere. Uh, we get, obviously, the word damnation from. But we also get the word damage from. It's the idea of being in a perennial state of damage. We would say in modern language, just damaged goods. Damaged, broken. Continually entering into new cycles of damage and brokenness. Over and over and over again. And not just us being damaged goods, but us through our actions and our choices. of Sometimes even in our inaction, not stepping in to stop various forms of injustice. We perpetuate this damaged state of human beings. We are all damaged, broken human people. This is literally what the word condemned means. The word 
condemn literally means with damage. Con means in addition of with damage, continually adding damage to damage upon our souls. This is the state of human beings. Again, this is what Jesus describes. Uh, but again, listen, it says in verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God's not the active agent in bringing condemnation and bringing damage to your soul. If you've ever heard that or thought that or envisioned that or imagined that, that is part of the propaganda campaign from the true villain of the story. God is the active agent to suspend and stop the damage that's taking place, that's taking root within our souls so that then he can, in its place, bring forth life. This is God's aim. But, again, like I said, we have to first and foremost face the reality, the hard reality, and sometimes uh, disheartening reality, that this is the state of humanity as it exists. And then, lastly, it tells us why human beings are in the state of perishing, decomposition, decay, or entropy, disorder, randomness, uh, or damaged state. Because, Jesus says in verse 19, this is really important, uh, he says, uh, this is the judgment, and don't get hung up on the word judgment. The word judgment can mean like universal lateral, lateral judgment, proclaiming an announcement upon something. But it could also just simply mean the idea of rendering truth, speaking forth truth. Don't be afraid of truth, guys. None of us should ever be afraid of truth. We should be afraid of those that suppress truth. We should worry about those that would try to hide truth or even our own propensity to do the same. That should concern us. Truth is ultimately something that we have to face. But as we face it, yes, it may be like looking into a mirror and realizing, ah, that is not the person that I want to become or that I want to be. And as you begin to face that reality, now you have an opportunity by way of grace, God, God offers, to change, to make modifications, to make course corrections. Uh, and this is what God offers. But what we see is that this is the judgment, verse 19, or the rendering of truth, that light has come into the world, but people have loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and those who come to light, lest their works be exposed. So he tells us pretty clearly why you and I as human beings, and the general population of human beings, oftentimes hate Jesus. Have you noticed that? Because we realize there's something wrong with us. Something's not right. There's something damaged about the state and the condition of our souls. And yet, we don't want to come and face the reality, and so we run from Jesus. We run from the only one that Jesus tells us that offers life. And if there's never a stopping of that, Jesus seems to describe that there comes a point in time when we die, when our, we breathe our last, that this whole process or trajectory we find ourselves on just goes on throughout in eternity. Again, there's all sorts of debate on what that looks like, but the point that I would make is this, is that we have an option or a possibility in, I should say, in this life right now to come to the light that Jesus presents to us, face our deeds, how wicked and evil and broken and messed up they are, not only in rendering our lives broken and messed up, but oftentimes just spewing over and bringing forth destruction and ruin upon the lives of other people, that Jesus says, I have come to give you that which can take away the consequences of all of this decomposing, decay, damaged state, and to give you something in its place that 
is life-giving, that's regenerative, that's like coming to the light. So Jesus makes his point. He says, but the reason is that human beings, the, the general condition of us and who we are is that we love the darkness. And this is something we have to face. And I, I want to take a, two seconds to just unpack this. Because oftentimes we hear the word um, agape as being the word that describes God's love. I got some interesting bit of news for you that this particular passage actually tells us. Take a look again at verse 19. This is the judgment that light has come to the world, but people have loved. Uh, underline, if you have a pen, if you would like, that word love. That word love right there is the word agape. It's literally the word agape. That human beings love darkness. Just like God loves, John 3, 16, the world. So what does this mean? We have to unpack a little bit the word love. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but the particular word that's used is the the Greek actually has several different words to describe the word love. The Bible uh, has at least three of those words. One is the word eros. You've heard of that before. You get the word erotic from. This is kind of more of a sexual type of love. Uh, Another one is phileo. That kind of is more of like a brotherly type of love or familial type of love. If you've got family members and you just, you know, you you love your brother, but sometimes you can hate your brother. You get the idea, but you're always going to love your brother. That kind of idea that's like a family type of love. We get the name uh, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. But then the other word that's used is the word agape. And oftentimes uh, scholars and other Others would kind of describe this word as, as, an, as a word to exclusively dis- define God's love for humanity. Though that's not actually true. Because we're told right here that, that human beings have the same qualitative love for the world that Jesus has for fallen humanity. So what does this mean? Uh, what Jesus seems to be saying here is that humans have loved the darkness. They love the darkness. The word agape, I think the best way I could describe it, is this deep, commitment-oriented love, deep commitment-oriented love. You can even use the word covenant. You make a covenant with something. You devote yourself to it. You devote your energies to something like that. That's the type of love that God has towards broken, fallen human beings like you and I, under the yoke of empire, under the destruction, under the thumb, under the grip of uh, organized systems that are trying to oppress or bring destruction or ruin upon our lives or control or whatever the case is, tyranny. But the point of the matter is that we see that God... God's love is oftentimes matched by the type of love or devotion that we have to darkness. We, as human beings, are devoted to darkness. And the question is, why? Why do we devote ourselves to something that we know is so bad? And again, some of us might not even want to come to grips with that, because that sounds so bad. And there's this tendency for us to think that I'm not like Hitler. Maybe you're not like Hitler, but you might have traits that are like Hitler. Given the right circumstances, right conditions, right situations, we may do things that would shock us into realizations that we're not ready to grasp or deal with, but they are there in our lives. This is the weird thing about the human condition, which is what brings me to Taylor Swift. Um, if you're familiar with her song, she just recently came out this with back in October, and I, honestly, I think it's it's amazing. It's and, and I will gladly, don't judge me, I don't have a problem admitting my masculinity, I don't have a problem with Taylor Swift. She's good. She's a good musician. There, I said it. Um, and I'm actually even shocked that I'm even like putting this in my sermon, but there you go. That's what you get. 
you get what you pay for, right? But point that I want to make is this, is that she has a song that she ironically has described or titled as Antihero. She describes this as a guided tour about the things that she hates about herself. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, at some point today, again, I can't believe I'm telling you this, your homework is to go to YouTube and just watch the video. It's, it's actually really, really good, and it's really an amazing song. It has a really catchy tune. But the point of the matter is I digress. What I want to point out about the song is so fascinating. Is it honestly is an incredible, incredible uh, analysis of the human condition. I I don't think she's a Christian. I don't have any suspicions that that's the case. But the point that I make is that this song so graphically and categorically captures the brokenness of human condition. I want to read you a couple passages of the song that hopefully capture this. Um, the first line is worse, the whole song, which I'm not going to read, but just go ahead and check it out on your own. Uh, one of the other lines in the song, she says is, I should not be left to my own devices. They come with prices and vices. I end up in crisis. She goes on to say the next line, I wake up screaming from dreaming one day. I'll watch as you're leaving because you got tired of me scheming. She's looking at her career and realizing that she did not just simply wind up in that career. She worked to get there, hard to get there. She saw herself as the architect of everything. And yet, now that she has everything, she's realizing how much she does not actually have by way of sanity and peace of mind and peace of soul. She goes on to say, did you hear my covert narcissism? I disguise as altruism, like some kind of congressman. Wow, that's like, like, I don't know how to, like, I get chills when I even, like, read that. I'm like, how many people are that honest to say, like, look, did you not see me post my black square, how amazingly altruistic I am? Is that maybe just a form of narcissism? Is it maybe just a form of just posturing one's greatness and good deeds so that the world can see and think how amazing you are? And I guess she's just looking at this as a, as a way of observation and saying, these are the things that are part of my world that I'm observing about my life. She goes on to say um, in the chorus, and this is, this is, again, catchy tune. If you have not heard the song, it's so catchy. I'm singing it right now in my head, but I'm not going to sing it for you. She says this, it's me, hi, I'm the problem. It's me at tea time. Everybody agrees. I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. It must be exhausting, always rooting for the anti-hero. Always rooting for the anti-hero. As I was thinking about this, it's like, this, this is a graphic description of, like, literally what Jesus is saying right here. Like, not literally, but you get the idea. There's elements of it that kind of trace into what Jesus is saying. So, for example, she's basically saying trusting, rooting for this anti-hero. Not the hero, but the anti-hero. The one that's flawed, the one that oftentimes does good things, the one that oftentimes drifts into really horrible, heinous actions and activities, the one that oftentimes finds itself in narcissistic attitudes. She's saying that as I'm on this path, I realize I'm constantly battling the reality of chaos, alienation and abandonment, everybody betraying me, inauthenticity, which is dehumanizing, and then ultimately just exhaustion just constantly tired and exhausted. And I love the raw honesty of this. And this is the state that human beings find themselves in. And I was thinking about this in terms of a, a question. And I have a, I think I had written this up here, a little question to kind of move on to the very next thing is, is that what if there was a power or specifically a person in the universe that's strong enough to suspend, and you might even add, eager enough to suspend the forces of decay and destruction caused by darkness. And the big question is, would you turn to him? 
Would you turn to him? What if, what if right now in this world in which you find yourself in some form of agreement either with Jesus or, God forbid, even Taylor Swift, like, yes, that's me. I'm the one that's causing the problem in my life. Is there a way to suspend, to stop, to overcome that, to overtake it, to put in its place life? And this is the hope of what Jesus is saying, that God sent his son into this world not to condemn it, not to add to the damage of it, but to actually take the damage that's as the result of sin and our sinful condition of loving, this love affair that we have with darkness. That Jesus gives us the capacity to rewire what we love so that rather than loving darkness and deeds of evil and our own narcissistic ways and our own self-destructions and all of these things that so oftentimes define us so that we can be free, like truly liberated from this stuff to love the one who's truly loving. I was thinking about this, that really at the end of the day, we live in a world today that demands you align with it. The systems. The systems of empire. You, you think they're benign? You think they don't care how you align with the morals and the values and the virtues that they're proclaiming? You're crazy. If anything, over the past two years, we've noticed how good people say the wrong thing, and they're immediately dismissed. They just go away. They vanish. They're done taken off of platforms. They're de- like literally deplatformed. They're not given space to come back. In some cases, they might be. And again, I'm not talking about left and right conspiracy. I'm just talking about reality. You guys all know this. We all have known some famous person, influencer, whatever, that has somehow said the wrong thing, crossed the wrong line, said something the wrong way, uh, whatever. And as a result of that, just they've not, they've, they've violated the codes that empire have demanded you align with. And the fact is, there's no forgiveness from empire. It has none to give. You cross Jesus. You fail Jesus. He's got nothing but a world of forgiveness to offer us. That's what he does. He takes upon himself the course of evil darkness and lets it do to him what it does to us constantly and it crushes him empire evil empire crushes jesus that's what we call the crucifixion it does to him what enemies of the empire do but he comes alive we call that the resurrection he's alive and he invites people to follow him and so we take upon ourselves a new life that jesus himself offers that jesus himself has gone ahead of us and experienced all of it. The soul-crushing, soul-grinding conditions of this world. He takes it upon himself and as a result brings about a means so that all of the forces of death, darkness, destruction, ruin, condemnation, hell that are at work in our souls right now and will consistently grind away with us throughout all eternity unless we acknowledge. Again, propaganda says Jesus is standing here with a Finger pointed at us saying, if you do not, you're destroyed. He's just simply looking at it and saying, the condition of humanity is broken. Unless something disrupts that, it will have its course with us. It will take us to places we never even envisioned or imagined. And actually what we see is the very opposite, that Jesus is filled with love, saying, listen, I know the antidote to the pain 
that you're suffering. And how to bring healing into those areas that are filled with brokenness. Which leads me to the last thing of the idea of coming to the light. And this is what we see in verse 21. I'm going to read this out of the ESV, but I'm going to read another couple translations just because the ESV is a little bit um, difficult to understand exactly what Jesus is saying here. He says, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their works have been carried out in God. Um, the Amplified Version says something like this. Whoever practices truth and does what is right morally, ethically, spiritually comes to the light so that his works may be plain, may, may plainly may be plainly shown to be what they are. And he goes in hyphen, accomplished in God, or divinely prompted, done with God's help, independence on him. And I'm going to lastly read out of the message, if you're familiar with that. It's more of a paraphrase, but it says something like this. Everyone who makes a practice of doing evil, this is really insightful, addicted to denial and illusion, hates God's light and will not come near it. Why do we not come to the light? I think this is really insightful because we're addicted to denial and illusion. Which made me think about Neo in The Matrix. <laughs> Sorry, my brain's kind of weird. That moment when he takes the red pill and all of a sudden he wakes up and he realizes, I'm in this like, like massive warehouse, whatever it is, this pod, city of pods of human beings that are uh, attached to this particular like weird post-dystopian type of world and, and they're providing fuel for whatever the system is that's there. But those that are kind of hooked up to the matrix, they're being fed this illusion. And it's beautiful. And it's good. It's sensual. It's filled with good food and good memories and good thoughts and good ideas. And everything in that world is good. But you're hooked up to the system and you're not really alive. I think that's a graphic description of our world today. We would prefer to be hooked up to illusion, and we're addicted to denial, and we remain in that state forever, and we never truly live. Jesus is saying, I've come to remove you from that system. And he goes on to say, God hates, it says, uh, that are addicted to denial and illusion. They hate God's light, and they won't come near it. They fear painful exposure. But anyone walking and living in truth and reality welcome God's God's light so that the work that can be seen from is the work that God is all about. In other words, what I think he's trying to say here, uh, I'm trying to say that John is trying to say, is that as we take that step to come to the light, to allow the light to do what light does, is it reveals things about us. It shows us that uh, everything is not as I assumed or thought it was. But that's truth. You face the truth. You look at the truth. You let the truth have its painful reality upon your soul, whatever painful reality that is. But know simultaneously as that reality may feel piercing because it's exposing you, you can also know that in the presence of the one that emanates this light, God, he's filled with love. He's not shaking his finger at you. He's not adding damage to your damage state. He's not adding shame to your brokenness. He's lifting it from you. He's taking it away. He's carrying it upon to himself. He's clothing you with clothing that you can never even imagine or even pay for because you don't have the resources, the means, the ability to somehow earn it. It's literally what Paul would later say. It's a gift from God that we receive. 
And this seems to be what John is saying, is that God so loves the world that he invites us to walk in step with the light, as painful as that is, as hard as it comes, as oftentimes as challenging as it may feel upon our soul, it is the path to life. Frederick Buechner, uh, pastor, author, described something like this in his book called Longing for Home. He says, we are in constant danger of being not actors in the drama of our own lives, but reactors. Not actors, but reactors. Do you ever feel like that? I think it's a great description. We tend to think that we're in control of our lives, but really we're just reactors. We're just reacting to every circumstance that's arising, every trauma that comes into our life, every type of misinformation that we have to face, every type of broken relationship. We're just simply reacting. We're not in control of our lives. And it goes on to say, the fragmentary nature of our experience shattered us in, shatters us into fragments. Instead of being whole, we end up in pieces. We see the whole world in pieces, full of darkness. Have you noticed that? People that are, you know, you often hear the phrase, hurt people, hurt people, right? That's what happens. If you see the world in fragmented pieces, you tend to project that everybody else is just broken. It's interesting, even going back to the video of Taylor Swift, uh, she's literally a fragmented human being. There's three of them, and she's having dialogue with her alter egos. You know, uh, it's, it's me, but the question at some point, you're just like, which, which me is it that's the problem? And then it gets to the very end. There's, I didn't read it, but uh, she has this dream of her, uh, her stepdaughter basically doing everything they can to take everything that she has. And so you're kind of left with this question, like, what's the real problem? Is the problem one of the three of the Taylor Swifts, or is the real, real problem people that are out to suck her drive everything that she has? Like, what's the real problem? This is where, from Scripture and what Jesus has to say, the real problem is our brokenness and our sin and our love affair with the darkness and our disdain of coming to the light because we're desperately afraid of being revealed for who we are and found out. But the beauty of the gospel continually comes back over and over again to remind us that in spite of how broken we are, in spite of how damaged goods we are, how much damage that we've caused to other people's lives, God is for us. He loves us. Yes, he condemns sin. Yes, he hates evil. He hates evil like a good father who should hate evil, hates evil. He hates evil the way a good father should hate a dog that is attacking his child, should hate a dog and do everything he can in his power to get rid of that dog. That's how God hates evil. He's come to do something about that. So in closing, our invitation now is to really think about what is God asking of us? For some, it is you got to come to the light. And maybe even ask yourself, if you have not yet come to the light, like truly come and experience the grace of God, why? What, what's holding you back? What misinformation are you nurturing or holding on to? What stories about God are keeping you at arm's length? What is and are the narratives that you keep telling yourself that are keeping you from entering into the healing and the wholeness that Jesus offers? My hope, in conclusion, that we would step into all that God has. And the way that we do that, just simply, is the Bible describes this kind of twofold path. One is just repent. Repent means to turn away, to acknowledge as you look at yourself in the mirror and you realize, ah, this is not what I had hoped. This is not what I envisioned for myself 30 years ago when I first started out in life and started doing stuff or making decisions for myself. This is not how I envisioned or imagined things would end. But here it is. You've got to face the facts. Truth is not your enemy. It is your friend. It will speak truth to you, yes. But this is where the beauty of capital T truth, the embodiment of truth, Jesus, 
comes and wraps his arms around you and says, I made you. I love you. I'm for you. I've come to clothe you. I've come to take away the tumors that are just filling your body and causing you pain and destruction and ruin and adding to your, your demeanor and your broken state and the constant ongoing evil and chaos to that is not only being unleashed upon your own life, but through you is being unleashed in the lives of so many other people. I've come to rescue you because I'm for you. So, I'm done. How about we all stand? I'm going to pray over us, and we will conclude. And just in this time right now, if you are in a state here where you need prayer for anything that's going on in your life, we always want to just make special place for praying for each other. Like, we've got stuff. All of us are, are damaged goods, if you want to use it, that analogy. All of us are damaged goods. Uh, you come into this building, you're like, I'm damaged goods. All these people are like good people. Mm-hmm. No, we're actually not. We're all broken, messed up people. But we have a good God that loves us and makes good out of broken messes. That's who he is. That's what he does. That's why we celebrate. That's why we meet on Sunday of all days, because it reminds us that resurrection is a reality that we live into. So I want to pray over us. So Jesus, right now, we just confess to you our sin. We just acknowledge, God, who we are in the mirror and in the light. And God, thank you that in spite of who we are, you're for us. You're the creator. You're not just some entity in the universe. You're not just some hopeful God that's out there wishing good wishes over us. You are an active agent in the story that you initiated. In spite of the fact that we have gone astray, in spite of the fact that we have drifted from your original intentions, in spite of the fact that we have had this love affair with darkness and illusion and deception, we thank you, God, that you have come to rescue us from these cycles of despair, anxiety, sinfulness, brokenness, and set us free to follow you. So God, even now, we invite you to liberate hearts, liberate souls, liberate minds, to discover the grace and the goodness that you give, that you have to offer. Thank you, Jesus, that you forgive and wash and cleanse. For every person here in this room, God, that would confess their sin and repent, but then believe and trust in Jesus, God, would you just meet them right where they're at and make them new? Something that you alone, Jesus, are capable and powerful enough to do. So we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.